from the great Pacific Northwest where last year's summer was on a Thursday. We frolicked all day long, rain came back, we ain't seen the sun since. But we're hoping, uh, you know, for good things this June. Uh, God, God bless you, we love being with you. And now, do you know that you're part of a phenomenon? No, 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 no. You're part of a phenomenon here at Higher Vision Church. Um, uh, Ed Stetzer is a church growth expert uh, for, with, with New Life Ministries, and here's what he states. There are 365,000 evangelical Christian churches in America. Today, worshiping Jesus. Did you know that? Um, he also states that there are 1,362 churches above the size of 2,000 worshiping. Now, let me put it in context. That's 0.38% of all churches in America. 0.38% over 2,000. Did you know you all had 8,000 on Easter, somebody? Come on. And you're going to have 4,000 today, which brings you into 0.04% of all churches in America. That's one of less than 90 churches are like you. There's a phenomenon happening in this valley. Now, unlike in nature, unlike in nature, phenomenons don't just occur. Phenomenons in the church world happen because of phenomenal leadership. Your pastor is one of the elite pastors. He's a gift of God. Can you appreciate your pastor, my friend, Jared Ming? Love you, bro. I hate the fact that you have more hair than me. God, that makes me mad. Anyway, I'm going to be preaching out of the Gospel of Luke this morning and encouraging some of us that are follically challenged and others that are not. God bless you, too. The title of my message is Search and Rescue. I hope you're taking notes today because God's going to cause you to recall these things that you've heard. And I hope you write them down or type them in um, because God wants to bring you from where you are to where he wants you to be. And you need to refer to your notes that you that have taken today. I hope you'll do that. Uh, how many of you appreciate our military? <laughs> men and women, men and women that put themselves in harm's way for our freedom and safety. I, I love the slogans of the military, right? If you're in the air force, aim high. If you're in the army, uh, Army strong. If you're in the Marine Corps, the few, the proud, the Marines, hoorah! Do you know who doesn't get much love? The Coast Guard. I mean, just think about the, their, their, their slogan, the Coasties. Doesn't sound very ferocious. But here's what I know about the Coast Guard and their slogan. You know, up in the Bering Sea in Alaska, when the winds are blowing 90 miles an hour and there are 60-foot seas, that officially grounds every branch of the military except the Coast Guard. That's when they go out. And those guys that are in helicopters will be flying in 100 mile an hour winds with 60 foot swells rescuing fishing boats, diving into the water. And you know what their slogan is? So others may live. They sign on doing their job, knowing they're probably going to forfeit their life at one point, so others may live. Is that not the testimony of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who came on the ultimate search and rescue mission? Now, many of us, I, I know this about our life because I, I'm a sociologist at heart. My, one of my undergrad degrees is in behavioral sciences. So I'm a studier of people. I go to the mall and just kind of check it out. <laughs> Here's what I know about people. We're far more broken than we're really letting on. There's two versions of us, the one we project and the one that we really are. And I want you to know this, that Jesus Christ is on the ultimate search and rescue mission for people because that's what Jesus does. And he, and he came to this earth for one salient reason, and it is so that others may live. 
You know, I was in, a, I was in Australia um, preaching at a conference there with um, my friend Shane Baxter, and he let me drive his car. Have you ever driven on the other side of the road? Freaky. Now, his car is not just a car. It's a Holden. Now, those of you that know cars know this. It's 580 horsepower. And, it's a, it's a, and you're shifting with your left hand, and, and it's kind of, kind of, kind of odd. Uh, um, and, and, but they, like America, have speed limit signs, right? I, I, the society, you have to transfer the math. It's, like, it's in kilometers, so it's 80K miles per hour. And, and, and so uh, in America, we know how it works, right? When it says 70 mile an hour speed limit, they don't really mean 70. Because you know you got that seven mile an hour variance. There's an unwritten rule between police and, and civilians. We, seven miles an hour, you're good to go. In California, I think it's like 12. But in Washington, I think it's seven. But in Australia, that's the case. No, 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 no. In Australia, they ain't fooling. They ain't fooling around. And matter of fact, they have cameras on every road, even the rural roads. And they're taking photographs of speeders. I was driving his Holden going 83 miles an hour. 83K, 83 kilometers an hour. I get a phone call because in Australia, here's the deal. If you get three of those tickets, you lose your license for a year. Now, Shane is the pastor of a mega church and a mega organization. He's had two. <laughs> pastor Roger, you were speeding my car. I'm losing my license for a year. You got to make a phone call right now to Australia because they're going to take my license away. <laughs> you got it, Pastor Shane. So this last year I went back and he didn't let me drive his car. They gave me a minivan. So, you know... <laughs> I was safe. But, but like in, in Australia, it's a speed limit. But in, us, in America, it's kind of like a speed suggestion. I think sometimes we read our Bible kind of like that. It's not really the Ten Commandments. It's kind of the Ten Suggestions. And then we wonder why our life gets off track. And we get all kinds of chaos and anxiety and problems in our life because God is not fooling. He wrote that book as, as a godly guardrail to help us save us from ourselves and lead us to fulfillment of life and have maximum fun. But when we deviate from that, we get what we get. And sometimes we get lost and in desperate need of rescue. It's with that narrative in mind, I'm going to read from the Gospel of Luke this morning. I want to give you some context of, of when this is being written and give you some backdrop. So I'm doing my PhD right now and I'm doing all this research and so I'm, like, I'm in this research mindset. So it's changing my, the way I even... Uh, um, put together and compile my messages. But on the face of a clock, if you look at 11 o'clock, you'll have Rome. If you go to 1 o'clock, you'll have Greece. Uh, if, you, if you go to uh, 3 o'clock, you'll have Asia Minor or modern-day Turkey. And if you go to uh, uh, 5 o'clock, you'll have Palestine or Israel. And at 6 o'clock, you'll have northern Africa. So in the context of the writing of the Scripture, there's 100 million people in the Roman Empire. Basically, two and a half times the size of the state of California. Come on, if you've been on I-5 at 3 o'clock, hello, somebody say amen. A hundred million people, and they're so diverse. All kinds of ethnicities, all kinds of socioeconomic realities, all kinds of strengths, all kinds of uh, opportunities. But what the Roman government does not want to have happen are those people groups to rise. So what do you do? You cripple them uh, economically. So the, 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 the empire of Rome levied a 50% tax on everyone in the Roman Empire. Now, if you happen to be in the nation of Palestine or in, in Israel, it doubled down worse for you because if you happen to be a Jew, you were also surcharged a 10% temple tax. Now, here's what that means. You have to pay 
of your taxes, of your income to go to temple. Now, this wasn't optional because here's the deal. If you're a Jew in that culture and you don't go to temple, you don't do business, you don't get to get married, you don't get to have any kind of interaction in socially, uh, socially, you are ostracized. So you're paying the darn tax whether you like God or not. You don't get a vote. So basically, you're living on 40% of your income, living hand to mouth. Now, to make matters exacerbated and even worse, they have someone called tax collectors. Can you say IRS? Thank you, Jesus. Ogden, Utah. Bless them, oh God. Bless them. Bless them. Do not curse. Now, the tax collectors were kind of slimy kinds of people back in that. Not today, like, like today, the IRS are good people. But back then, they were super slimy and super like sketch. Because they had side hustles going on, they'd extort more. So you weren't living on 40, you were living on about 37, 36, 35. And to double down on the double down, there was an echelon of even more deplorable people called the chief tax collectors in the regions. And those guys were extorting from the tax collectors who were, had to extort more from the people. So basically you were living in starvation and poverty if you lived in the Roman Empire, particularly in the area of Palestine. Are you with me so far? Okay, so we're going to pick up the narrative now in... Um, in Luke chapter 19. By the way, I wrote a book called Risk. It's all about faith. Get it. Okay, that's my commercial. <laughs> You'll see why at the end. Jesus entered Jericho and made his way through the town. And there was a man named Zacchaeus. And he was the chief tax collector in the region and had become very rich. Now, when I first gave my life to Jesus at age 18, I had never been to church ever. My dad owned a nightclub and I was a bartender working for my dad. I lived with my dad. I gave my life to Jesus and I was so excited. And uh, God bless you. Someone sneezed here. Those watching online, you didn't catch that. I'm blessing all of you all, all over the world. <laughs> I gave my life to Jesus and never held a Bible and my discipleship here was the extent of my discipleship. Not like your great growth tracks, by the way, you need to go to that. Uh, the guy handed me the Bible and it was like this big. It was a layman parallel Bible. I don't know if that gives you any context. Have you ever seen the size of that thing? That would gag an elephant. Book this big. And I knew if I started at the beginning, I would never finish. So I started in the middle. Found the book of Paslums. Oh, I rocked the book of Paslums. Some of you aren't laughing because you don't get it. But the book of Paslums was my friend. And so I was reading Paslums 1, and I was getting the job done. Paslums 2, I know I can get through. Paslums 3, I feel so free. I got to the 23rd Paslum, and I rocked my world. I committed to memory. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. Wicka, 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 wicka. I was getting that Paslum deep in my soul, yo. And you know how you have that who will always tell you when there's food in your teeth? No one loved me that much. <laughs> Paslums is, Paslums that. Finally, after a month of quoting Paslums, this guy puts his arm around my shoulder and says, Yo, bro, the P is silent. <laughs> I did not know that. <laughs> now, uh, when I gave my life to Jesus, my dad kicked me out of my house and, and fired me because he didn't want a Christian attending bar for him. So I lost my employment and my way to live. And so now I'm, I'm you know, 18 years old, doing my senior year, living by myself with no job. And, 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 and so the, the guy that gave me the Bible says this, the Bible has relevant answers for today's tough questions. So like, okay, go to the Bible. So I'm going to the table of contents, right? Table of contents. Oh, I'm scanning, I'm scanning, I'm scanning, I'm scanning. You know what I find? The book of Job. <laughs> yes! Rock on Bible! So by the time I got to chapter three, I needed Prozac for my depression. <laughs> so may I just assume you don't know anything? Can I just assume that? 
Because I remember going to church and the, and the pastor would say, and we all know the story of how Melchizedek was the high priest in the land, the land of the wilderness and in the land of En Gedi and God. We all know that story. I do not know that story. <laughs> I've just come from an ACDC concert, barely sober, and I don't know that story. <laughs> but you know what really got me about reading the Bible? Was all the Bible names. Nebuchadnezzar? Eliahu? Zachowah. So what I used to do is just say the first letter. So I'd call him Z. I couldn't pronounce him. I love the story of Zacchaeus, though. I used to call him Z. That sounds tough anyway, right? There's a man named Zacchaeus, and he was the chief tax collector, the ultimate slimeball of the region. And he'd become very rich. He tried to get a look at Jesus, but he was too short to see over the crowd. Now let me ask you this very probing question. You see, we know that in the first century, the Middle Eastern male was five feet six. How short a brother got to be not to be able to see for five, six? <laughs> la, 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 la. This was an angry Smurf <laughs> tax collector. He's bitter. You know he's bitter because he's vertically challenged. <laughs> That's not my notes. I should probably squid and stick to them. Uh, so he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree beside the road for Jesus was going to pass that way. When he came by, he looked at me, saw Zacchaeus, and called him by name. Zacchaeus, aren't you glad that Jesus knows you by name? Aren't you glad that there's not some spam list in heaven where God sends out bulk junk to your inbox? My Bible tells me in Psalm 139 that he knit me together in my mother's womb, and he knows me very well. Jeremiah 1.5 says, before I formed you in your mother's womb, I knew you. Before the zygotes came together, and mitosis became meiosis. Before embryo became fetus, and began gestation went nine months, and you were born, God knew your name. And not only does God know your name, he knows where you are, what you're facing, and what you're going through, because he's the ultimate culsty on search and rescue mission for us. Zacchaeus, he said, quick, come down. I must be a guest in your home today. Oh, no, you didn't. No, 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 you didn't. You see, in our culture, we can go ahead and have a lunch with a business prop prospect if it can make us some more money, even if they're a disgusting human being, and we know that they're a dirge, but if it can move our needle and we can make a better bottom line, we'll go ahead and bite the bullet and have a meal with them. But in this culture, if you have a meal with a person in this culture, you're making a sociological statement, and here it is. I identify with you, I welcome you, I value you, and we are one in community. Now, can you imagine this Jesus person who claimed to be the son of God and who is known to be the, the, the great prophet sent by God to build a bridge between creator and creation? He's having a meal with this slimy scuzzball Zacchaeus, the chief tax collector of the region. Zacchaeus climbed down and took Jesus. Oh, look at this. Zacchaeus quickly climbed down and took Jesus to his house. I wonder if he came out of the tree smooth, you know, or was it like a Plinko chip? He's a short dude, you know, couldn't reach. But the people were displeased. He has gone to be the guest of a notorious sinner, they grumbled. Meanwhile, Zacchaeus stood before the Lord and said, I will give half of my wealth to the poor if I have cheated people on their taxes. If I will give them back four times as much. Jesus responded, salvation has come to this home today, for this man has shown himself to be a true son of Abraham. Can we read verse 10? out loud together. Ready? Here we go. For the Son of Man came to seek and save those who are lost. Father God in heaven, I'm so thankful that you reached out to a trailer trash kid in North Idaho in 1983 and you introduced yourself to me. I'm so thankful that throughout the course of my life when I've been unworthy and unmeriting your favor, you've sought me out.
And now, God, here we are in the middle of your house, in the middle of worshiping you and learning from your word. Would you please reach into our soul and rescue where we need rescuing? If you agree with that, would you say amen? amen. Or actually, would you say yaman, which is Jamaican for amen. God bless you. <laughs> yaman. As a sociologist, here's what I know to be true. We're probably in one of four stations in life. We're probably in one of four stations in life. And here's what I want you to know about one of those four stations. Uh, Jesus has already been there. He's got you. Here's the first of four. I want you to know this, that in high seas, he dives into the storm. Some of us right now, uh, 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 note, without equivocation, some of us are in a storm. You have that relational turmoil and it's just tearing you apart. You have those financial pressures that only you know about and you're just shaking in your heart. You have this business deal that if it goes one degree to the left, you know that you could stand to be in, in financial ruin. You have a medical report and the doctor says, oh, by the way, those malignancy, those tumors, yeah, they are malignant. You have this reality uh, about your, 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 the station of your life and you're absolutely quaking because there's a storm and something is battering against the hull of your vessel. Can I tell you this? That Jesus dives into the storm with you. You are not alone. And the thing I know about uh, the nature of Jesus is this. He, he was the creator of the elements, so therefore he has the power over them. We see this happening and playing out in Mark's gospel, chapter 4. It says, there arose a great storm of wind, and the waves beat into the ship. 90 miles an hour, 60 foot seas. It was now full, and it was going down. He was in the hinder part of the ship, asleep on a pillow. And they awoke him and said to him, Master, care so not that we perish. He arose and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. You see, what the power of the Holy Spirit has the ability to do is to bring calm to your tempest. When there's a storm raging in your world, Jesus speaks the word shalom, and that storm has no alternative but to stop. You see, you and I, we can't control the elements, but what we control is us. And we need to call on the name of Jesus. Now, several years ago, I was invited to go to a learning practicum by one of the top five apostles that are on the planet today. And his name is Pastor Wayne Cordero in Honolulu, Hawaii. Pastor Wayne pastors one of the largest churches and has done more for academia and spiritual growth and, and formation than probably anybody in the last 75 years on the planet. He was holding this practicum for the top 40 churches in the Northern Hemisphere. And these top 40 leaders came, and, and I got a phone call. I didn't recognize the 808 number from Hawaii. I didn't know who it was. But you have to know Pastor Wayne to appreciate him. He's this little short Portuguese guy, so Hawaiian, so, so not imposing. And his voice is so sweet. Hello, this is Pastor Wayne Cordero. Is this Roger Archer? And I know exactly who it is. I mean, his reputation's like, you know, famous across the earth. Yes, I heard you were planting a church in Puyallup. I would like to extend an invitation to you to come to my learning practicum. All expenses paid to Honolulu. Would you be interested? Let me pray about that. Yes. <laughs> so I go to this practicum and I have my computer open and man, my, I'm ready to take notes and learn from Pastor Wayne. All 40 of these leaders are like... 10,000 and above churches all over the Northern Hemisphere. And we're, they're taking notes. But there was this one annoying pest in the group and everyone wanted him to go away. Now I'm not painting with a broad brush because you should never do that with people groups. But what is it with Texas? 
for the love of God, we get it. Texas is great, but we can mess with you. Because <laughs> on their license plate, it says don't mess with Texas because it's like apparently nirvana. <laughs> Every time Pastor Wayne would start talking, this Texan would interrupt him. Pastor Wayne would be saying, okay, when it comes to the paradigm of the ons and on-ramps of church development of leadership, you may want to think about doing it this way because there is a dynamic of, and he'd start talking, and this text would go, shoot fire, Pastor Wayne, that never worked down in DFW. Maybe that works here in the islands, but that dog won't hunt down where I'm from. Everybody's looking around like, who invited this guy? Pastor would start talking again, and he would say, now, when it comes to uh, planting other churches, here's the strategy that we've employed. If you, you need to have the socioeconomic demographic studies done. Pastor Wayne, I, I think that's a lack of faith, brother. I don't mean to be rude and interrupt. Oh, yes, you do. <laughs> now, at the end of the learning practicum, Pastor Wayne wanted to teach us how to do church as a team, right? That was a whole, that was a DCAT, doing church as a team conference. So we go, we go out to, to, these, to these outrigger canoes, that are on the beach, and there's six of these boats lined up. And Pastor Wayne says, now out on the open ocean, the swells will be about six feet. You're going to want to make sure that you wear your life preserver, because if you go overboard, it can be a little bit frightening. Well, Pastor Wayne, no respect in Texas, would dare put one of those orange, dorky-looking things around their neck. Down in Texas, we just, we just, we're real men. We don't wear those things. Okay, you don't have to. Now, he's telling us that you have to stagger your paddles on the side of the outrigger because if two paddles get on one side of the boat, there's going to be a catastrophe. And, of course, the Texan had to sit in front because he was from Texas. <laughs> he jumps in the first seat. We get a mile off of shore. And that darn Texan isn't listening, puts his paddle on the wrong side, digs in, flips the outrigger, and everyone in his boat went into the drink. Six-foot waves. Here was the challenge. That dude can't swim. <laughs> I can't swim and everybody's going oh shucks <laughs> now I, I've had life I, I was a lifeguard uh, in, in, in high school so I I, I I knew what to do so over the side I boat I, I, I get the guy in the cross chest carried I, I, and he's starting to struggle he's starting to struggle with me and then I, I get this kind of smile because I head butted him in the face and <laughs> I may have broken his nose. It's not for sure. The x-rays weren't conclusive. So uh, get him to the, the side and, and he, his life is saved. Uh, do you know who the Texan is in the narrative? Us. That's us. Because Jesus has given us his Holy Spirit. He's given us his word. He's given us growth tracks. He's given us circles. He's given us all kinds of metrics of measurement of how to evaluate how we're doing. And sometimes we just go, la, 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 la. I can't hear you. And we do our own thing. And we get into a storm. And we've created the mess. But I've got good news for you. Even if we've created it, God wants to get us out of it. Because he dives into the storm. Search and rescue. Someone say amen. Number two, know this. That on high mountains, he braves the terrain. On high mountains, he braves the terrain. You know, technology made us a promise 15 years ago. I live in the, in the foremost, no disrespect to Silicon Valley, but the, the greatest tech area in the world, in the Seattle area with Microsoft. You may have heard of it, a little company started by Bill Gates. But technology made us a promise that we're going to give you all this technology that's going to help you be better connected. But here's what I know. The more technologically advanced we become, the more relationally disconnected we become. I know that because I was at dinner the other night in a restaurant and saw a family of five. No one talked for an hour and a half and everyone was looking down at their phone. And you know what we've created? We've created a culture of loneliness. 
People are far more lonely now than ever before in human history. And it doesn't matter how much money you make. It doesn't matter what, where you live, the dream uh, date you have, the dream spouse you have, the dream crib you have, the dream whip you drive in on. That's a car for those over 45. I want you to know this. It doesn't matter what we possess or, or, or don't. All I know is this, that there is a spirit of loneliness that is seeking to accost and oppress the creation of the earth. And we get up on these very high mountains and we feel very, very alone. And I, I want you to know this, that the enemy has a strategy to separate us. You need to be aware. You need to be cognitively aware that there's a strategy of the enemy to separate the sheep from the flock. Because if he can separate you, he can pick you off. Now, one of my top ten movies of all times is a movie called Vertical Limit. It's a story of a family of mountain climbers. By the way, those people that climb mountains and sheer cliffs need therapy. Just saying. In this movie, there's a, the, the opening scene, the opening scene of Vertical Limit starts like this. There, there's a family, a father and his two children, the son and the daughter, and they're climbing K2. And there's a 2,000-foot cliff that they're hanging off the side of. But tragedy beyond tragedy occurs, and all the crampons begin to come out of the rocks, and they're hanging from a singular rope, and the last one is beginning to fail. The father's at the bottom of the chain. The son is in the middle and the daughter's on the top. And, the, and as, the, as, the, as the terror begins to build, the father calls up to the son. He says, you've got to cut the rope. You've got to cut me loose. You've got to, you've got to separate me because I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bring us down. The daughter is calling down to the brother. And she says, don't you do it. Don't you do it. The dad says, you're going to kill your sister. You're going to murder your sister. You've got to cut the rope. Daughter's calling down, don't you kill my father. Don't you do it. The son calls, takes out the pocket knife. He's in a conundrum. He's in a quandary. What do I do? Do I listen to my dad or do I, do I, what do I do? I don't know what to do. And you see the knife up against the rope and there's a tension in his hand. The father's calling out. The daughter's calling down. And there's a slice of the knife and the father falls 2,000 feet to his death. Now the sister hates the brother passionately. And for 10 years, they don't speak. You fast forward 10 years, she's up on K2 again, leading an expedition, but she falls into a crevasse and she starts to get cardioedema and she's literally suffocating and dying in her own lung fluid. And there's only one person that knows how to get to where, her, where she is, as her brother. And her brother comes to the mountain K2 and he's fighting against time. Tick tock, tick tock, tick tock with every hour that goes by. His sister is closer to death. And now he comes to this unbelievable dead end. And there's this great divide between where she is and where he is. And he has no alternative but to either turn around or do what you are about to see. Vertical limit. Are you thankful for the Son of God that spanned the divide between creator and creation? He leapt across the universe and time and space for you and I to get to the terrain where you may feel lonely because even though you may feel lonely, you are not alone because Jesus came to search and rescue you.
Romans chapter 8, the Apostle Paul says this, For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor demons, nor the present, nor the future, nor any powers, neither height, nor depth, nor the, anything else in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is revealed in Christ Jesus our Lord. I want you to know this. The Bible tells us that he, he, that he holds us closer than the air around us. Let's talk about physics. Right now on sea level, it's 14 pounds per square inch that pressure is pressing in on you. There are 22 feet of skin, so you break that down. That's basically 3,962 pounds of pressure on you right now, holding you in gravity. And I want you to know that Jesus holds you closer than that, because on high terrains, he will brave it for you, because that's God's love for us. Someone should say, Yaman. <laughs> Number three, jot this down. Out in the desert, he comes bearing water. Life is filled with peaks and valleys, isn't it? But you know what it's more filled with? Desert. Do you know what's filled with more than peaks and valleys? Grind. And when we begin to grind through life, you know we find a familiarity. And you know what familiarity leads to? Not so much contemptuousness, but it does boredom. We become so predictable. Some of us can predict our next three weeks like clockwork. We don't need a calendar or some kind of uh, a day timer or technical device, we can predict our, our, our next three weeks. We know what we're going to do tomorrow, the day after that, and the day after that, because it's been the same for the last five years. And our life has become so predictable, it's become so routine, there's no passion, there's no, there's no passion, there's no pop, there's no zip in our life, and we are absolutely bored, and we are absolutely devoid of hydration, and we are dry. And I'm not talking about the seekers of Jesus, I'm talking about the followers of him. We've become so familiar with our love for God that we've lost the mystique because we've stopped risking. We've stopped living in faith. We've stopped stepping out. We've stopped resting on God's promises. We've stopped pushing the envelope to see what God would have us do. And we've settled into a comfort zone and it's made your life dry. But may I just tell you and encourage you with this one reality that is irrefutable, that out in the desert, he comes bearing water. Because we see in Isaiah chapter 44, verse 3, he says, I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. Was he talking about topography? No, he's talking about humanity. I will pour out my spirit on your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. He comes to your desert. He knows you by name. He sees the mirage of heat that looks like water that is not. And he has water for you. He has moisture for your thirsty soul. Because he's on a search and rescue mission. And he's never missed. He's never missed. He sees where you are. He feels the heat of your desert. He sees the grind of your life. And declares, I have passion for you. I have water for you. And I have hope for you in the desert. Fourth and finally, I'd have you know this, that deep in the pit, he descends with a way of escape. Now, now some of us quite possibly are so deep in a pit that we've probably just given up. We haven't seen rays of sunlight. All we feel is the muck and the mire and the mud between our toes and we just are in this pit. Addiction kind of does that to us, doesn't it? Disappointment kind of does that to us, doesn't it? You see, we get in these situations in our life that are out of our control where people have 
hurt us. They've damaged us. And that affects the way that we see life and people and relationships. And we get deep into this pit of despair and there isn't a pill produced by any drug manufacturer in the world that will make it right. At the age of six, my caregiver was my uncle who was a pedophile and molested me until I was 12 years old. That'll mess you up. It'll mess up the way you date. It'll mess up the way you see life. It'll mess up the way that you trust. It'll wreck you. And because my dad was a nightclub owner and I was in that kind of world, I didn't stand a chance for healthy relationships or right living or right thinking. It didn't stand a chance. I was so destroyed that at the age of 18, I was sitting with my 30-06 in my mouth, ready to pull the trigger and escape my pit. But I read the book of Paslums. <laughs> I read the book of Paslums 40. And this guy that was writing this story was probably a lot like me because these are the words that leapt off the page. It says, he lifted me out of the slimy pit out of the mud and mire and set my feet on a rock and gave me a firm place to stand. He is the solid rock. His name is Jesus. And he rolls the ladder into the pit and he lifts us out. Aren't you glad you came to church today? Would you bow your heads and close your eyes before Jesus?